Hello there. Today is on a Thursday on your weekly podcast, The Africa Climate Conversations. We still on the financing change in Africa series. Karibu sana. Welcome. I'm your host, Sophie Mbongo. The Financing Change in Africa series is a conversation made possible by a collaboration between the African Development Bank, the Climate Investment Funds, and the Africa Climate Conversations. So today we're having a very exciting conversation on just transition with Mike Ward, who will introduce himself in just a while. But before Mike does, we are asking ourselves how Africa can balance between its development plans and emission reduction, given that over 600 million people in Africa do not have access to electricity. Now, in 2009, the United Nations University Institute for Natural Resources had a report on Africa's stranded assets that warned that Africa must forego burning 90% of known coal reserves, 34% of gas, and 26% of oil. So the question is, how can Africa avoid stranded assets, stranded workers, and stranded communities as the continent implements the Paris Agreement and develop at the same time? But countries like South Africa have had one of the most advanced national dialogues on just transitions. South Africa was one of the countries, actually the only country to mention a just transition in its initial nationally determined contribution, NDC, in, in 2015. So what can African countries learn from South Africa, a country with long-standing coal dependence and also a high number, a high unemployment rate? Mike, thanks so much for joining this conversation. So who is Mike Ward? Yeah, my name is uh, obviously Mike Ward. I am South African uh, and work from South Africa, but currently work for the Climate Investment Funds. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the background work that I've done in this sector was work with the, the various banking associations, the, the large commercial banks in South Africa, having a look at what kinds of skills would be needed for a just transition. Mm -hmm. uh, and then more recently work uh, with the climate investment funds into South Africa, a case study on South Africa and just transitions mm -hmm. uh, in which we looked quite a lot at the investments that the African Development Bank have made into South Africa. Uh, we also did a case study on India and looked at, uh, at some of the particularly the big photovoltaic cells there. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we're kind of moving into, into other case studies that we chat a bit about as, as we go. Fantastic. And, and Mike, when we, when you talk about just transition, what are we talking about? So the, the way that we've been trying to understand just transitions, I mean, the one thing about just transitions is that there is no agreed upon definition. So it sure. depends a lot on your interests, uh, your perspectives. And so within the Climate Investment Funds, we set up something called the Just Transition Initiative with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. Okay and started to look across many different definitions and draw out what we felt were common dimensions of just transitions. And two key dimensions came forward. The first one is around solution. So who gets to decide on what a just transition looks like? Who is recognized? Uh, whose voices are heard? Uh, really the kind of procedural justice dimension. The second dimension is around who gets what. So the, the distributional impact of these big changes that, that we see taking place and the decisions that we're making around uh, climate action work. So those two dimensions uh, we mapped out into a just transition framework. 
And then across both of those are elements of transformational change. So are we trying to reform within existing systems or are we starting to acknowledge that some of the, the big social and economic systems that we have in the world uh, may actually be underlying causes of uh, of unjust uh, transitions and therefore that we need to change or at least engage with those big social and economic systems. And that would, would be a much bigger transformational project. Uh, and so we, we're trying to kind of move from emergent transformational change, reform orientations, all the way through to advanced uh, transformations uh, that open up greater issues of, of equity and, uh, and yeah, equity both in terms of, of recognition and in terms of distribution. Mm. Interesting. And, and uh, we basically have um, the world has to stay within uh, below two degrees warmer world, according to Paris Agreement, or aim to staying within, you know, get to at least 1.5 degrees. But when we look into the, this part of the continent uh, of the world, is that in terms of Africa, um, depending on where one is, there are some parts that are actually already warmer, already warmer than actually the two degrees Celsius. In terms of look into and the continent, when you look into the energy issues, because then um, majority of like we have still over 600 million people who still do not have access to energy and Africa in it's one of the continents that is highly impacted when it comes to issues of climate and uh, adaptation is critical but then again majority of these countries at this particular time recording their their natural resources basically um, when we talk about just transition how do we ensure that we stay within where the world wants to stay in terms of the Paris Agreement and also in terms of Africa develops? Sure, it's such a, a great question, Sophie. You know, the, the I think there's been some some very useful work around how do we stay not only within the, the kind of climate impacts, but within a range of, of others, you know, loss of biodiversity, uh, scarce water resources, uh, some of the, the kind of nutrient loading that we see around phosphates and nitrates. So, so the, this notion of how do we stay within these broad planetary boundaries mm -hmm. and yet at the same time meet the, the social needs uh, across a, a whole range of, of different issues, including things like education, uh, access to water, access to food, access to energy, as you say. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the, the big challenge, I think, is to find these safe and just pathways uh, within planetary boundaries while recognizing uh, the, the social needs. And I think that much of the kind of discourse to date has been centered around almost an oppositionalization between this development on the one hand and low carbon development pathways on the other. And mm -hmm. we see it come up over and over again. It's often stated as a balance between socioeconomic development and climate action. And, and I really think that this oppositionalization is based on the assumption that exploiting fossil fuel reserves is the cheapest way to address, address issues of energy poverty as well as other development uh, priorities in Africa. And my suspicion is that this assumption is no longer as true as, as it was. Um, I think that new solar, particularly uh, photovoltaics uh, and wind, is cheaper than most coal-based energy. Sure. Energy storage costs are falling dramatically. Uh, and so it's extremely likely that the continued investment in fossil fuel extraction and related energy production will lead to stranded assets and stranded communities in, in Africa. Mm. So I think that what, what we need to do in Africa is recognize that, that we're in a way blessed or we have these amazing 
natural resources beyond fossil fuels uh, and, and the importance of these natural resources for like local economies, local livelihoods. And I think it is a strong case to be made for moving investment away from unsustainable extractives towards a sort of regenerative economy, an economy that rebuilds these uh, ecosystems and societies uh, to, to build resilience and to open up long-term sustainable livelihoods. So I think that it's it's a shift that's happening, and it's a, it's a shift based largely on the on the economics of renewable energy uh, prices dropping below fossil fuel pricing, and it's going to shift the discussion significantly. Yeah, and when you look into this particular now in this discourse, basically you find that um, moving to renewable um, it's a fantastic way, and also in terms of making sure as much as Africa contributes very little but also it has to make sure that doesn't add on to the uh, more carbon than we have um, in the atmosphere. But then the question of providing finance has been such a critical one, especially when it comes to the international discourses. And you find that um, moving to renewable also the shift requires financing and money because and technology. And much of these technologies when it comes to renewables are not, um, they are still owned by developed countries. So how do Africa make sure that um, in the shift basically, do we look into more financing back at home? Do you look into the larger um, uh, groups of youth that we have, um, ensuring that we equip them in terms of coming up with home-based uh, solutions in terms of technology? Do we also look into terms of uh, regional projects like the AFCFTA? Uh, how do we make sure that um, in this particular energy shift, we do not um, have a much uh, call, we do not invest in energy projects that will actually be harmful and will actually be not be useful in the shorter term? But how do we ensure that we do not end up with having stranded assets and also stranded workers and stranded communities? And also ensuring mm. that we have technologies that uh, we um, they don't become overly expensive, that we don't we're not able to maintain them in the shorter uh, or in the uh, long run. Yeah, no, I think this is the is the big question. I think it's the it's the answers to this that that Africa and some of the the Asian countries are are providing are are key, but they're also contentious. So, mm. if we talk about just transitions and we talk about things like distributional impact, one of the the things that that need to be considered are restorative justice issues around uh, history, a history of of contributions into uh, CO2 emissions, uh, mm. as, as well as the, the kinds of, of possibilities that, that exist. And so restorative justice starts to raise uh, important questions around uh, who will, in a sense, take uh, uh, some of the responsibility for financing these transitions. And, and it's an important discussion to have. It's, a, it's not a comfortable discussion, but it mm. is absolutely vital. And the, the sort of common but differentiated responsibilities, the, the recognition that there needs to be concessional finance and support for uh, the transitions in, uh, in many countries in, in Africa, uh, I think are, are important discussions. And so mm. the, the kinds of contributions that, for example, the AFDB, mm. Uh, in partnership with the climate investment funds have made through partly concessional finance mm -hmm. into, for example, the renewable energy projects in, in South Africa, uh, early funding of the Syria wind farm, uh, early funding of concentrated solar power, uh, and that kind of, of partly concessional funding, partly loan funding, 
really opened up the space for the renewable energy uh, industry in, in South Africa. Uh, it still needs to be opened further, but, but that kind of almost pioneering work, taking some of the risk out of those initial investments, uh, allowed the, the development of a renewable energy independent power producers procurement program uh, in South Africa. And it also, I think, started to open up the path for private finance uh, to see possibilities and to get involved in the in the transition to to renewable energy, uh, and as I've said, you know, with with renewable energy becoming increasingly cheaper and very competitive with with coal and other fossil fuel uh, energy options, I think that 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 kind of support uh, needs to continue. It, we may not need concessional finance as much in some of the the actual renewable energy, but we're certainly going to need it in, for example, uh, building energy storage systems uh, to take some of the, the variability out of, of renewable energy. Uh, so, yeah, so I think that there's, there's both the need to recognize uh, the need for restorative justice, uh, as well as the, the importance of ongoing provision of, of carefully directed concessional finance uh, and and loan support uh, from organisations like the Climate Investment Fund, Green Climate Fund, uh, as well as the the various multilateral development banks. Mm, thanks, Mike. Um, and I, I want to actually stay within South Africa because uh, South Africa's national dialogue on just transition is one of the most advanced, basically I would say, probably in the world. But the country has the long-standing coal dependence and high unemployment rates. Um, in South Africa also, when it comes to the national determined contribution, uh, basically mentioned just transition in its initial NDCs. Um, tell us more a little bit about um, this whole uh, just transition in South Africa and the lessons you've learned. It's been a great history and KASATU, uh, the, the Congress of, of South African Trade Unions, uh, were very early on board. I think 2011, they produced a, a policy document uh, on just transitions in, in South Africa mm -hmm. that articulated a very broad notion of, of just transition. Uh, and they've continued to, to work with it uh, very carefully. And I think that, that for a while, maybe it, uh, it became less prominent, but in about 2016, when Eskom, the the large state-owned uh, enterprise or state-owned utility uh, on energy distribution, uh, when when they suddenly announced that they would be closing a number of, of coal-fired power stations and as a result the mines that, that, uh, that supply them, the unions really stepped up and they stepped in and, and uh, yeah, there were a number of, of protest actions, there were blockages of, of highways by some of the coal transporters Mm -hmm. uh, groups. There was certainly a high court application by, by some of the unions to have uh, the renewable energy uh, independent power producers procurement uh, re-looked at. And, and I think that, that it really lifted the, the discussion around just transitions. Uh, I, I will also say that the labor union is, is not necessarily a homogeneous group either. So mm -hmm. Uh, the National Union of, of Mine Workers, uh, NOM, uh, for example, would, would have a position that is quite, I think, narrowly focused on protecting mine jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas NOMSA, the, the National Union of Metal Workers South Africa, 
uh, has a much broader and I think more useful orientation to, to just transitions in that what they're saying is that we can't just have a transition of, for example, from coal mines and coal energy to renewable energy without thinking about who owns uh, the energy production, uh, what the purpose of that energy production is, you know, is it just to to benefit some very uh, energy intensive industries and, and small minority groups, or is it much, uh, much broader uh, development orientation in terms of providing access, uh, more equitable access to energy. So I think that the Just Transition discussion, it, it has been around for a long time. It's now being picked up by more and more sectors of society. So we see uh, government, as you say, including it in the national, in the first round of nationally determined contributions. I think the only country that, that did uh, have Just Transitions reference. Mm -hmm. uh, it has been picked up in our uh, kind of planning documents. So we mm -hmm. have a, a national development plan uh, and an entire chapter there talking on, on just transitions. So it's very much part of, of the government uh, discussion and discourse. Uh, Labour, obviously, I've mentioned civil society also picking up on it. Uh, and then increasingly business recognizing that we're going to need this just transition. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that one of the exciting things that's happened is that we've put in place a national body that is responsible for bringing together these different social partners, uh, business, government, labor, civil society, to discuss a just transition in South Africa. And it sits in the in the presidency. Uh, so it's the president's presidential climate change coordination committee. Uh, and it, I think, will be a key body in allowing this discussion to go forward. Mm. When it comes to that inclusion, do you think that it's been, it's actually going to really be helpful in terms of making sure that the communities who, the workers who work in these mining industries and also the owners basically in terms of the businesses, they are protected because then again, when it comes to climate adaptation and also when it comes to energy access and um, these big projects, um, have a small or big, I think it's very critical to make sure that communities on the ground, uh, we are protected and they able, their livelihoods are protected and they are are able to adapt as well and also ensure that these particular communities have access to energy not just having big power plants but also now when whatever is done within countries has to also go to the grassroots do you think inclusion of the just transition and there being an empowerment of these particular uh, all stakeholders involved do you think it has it was really uh will help in terms of making sure that these all these groupings and communities are protected when south africa in terms of adaptation in south Africa and also energy access. Yes, yeah, Sophie, such a such a great question. So in both the, the South Africa and the India case study, what mm -hmm. became increasingly apparent was that it is relatively uh, focused areas that will be most heavily impacted on by the transition out of coals and fossil fuels. Uh, in South Africa, it's Mpumalanga province and within the province, uh, probably three or four municipalities. Uh, similarly, in, in India, it's probably three or four states in India, uh, in the kind of northeast of, of the country that, well, central east, that, that will be impacted on. So one of the, the big discussions, and I think shifts that's happening, is this recognition that there needs to be a place-based uh, response if, if we're going to achieve just transitions. 
So in terms of social inclusion, we need to identify people in these uh, particular areas. We need to engage them in the discussion. They need to be able to influence the outcomes of what happens in these re relatively focused areas. Uh, and and so, yeah, it requires this, this very nuanced work on the ground in particular places, as you say, mm -hmm. in, in local communities. Uh, and, and it needs to be careful work. You know, one of the, the things that, that can happen, particularly around, for example, gender considerations, Mm -hmm. is that many of the, the coal mine workers are male. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the, the discussion could take place in male-dominated uh, meetings where the coal miners are, are seen as the, the sort of main uh, stakeholders. Whereas in the communities around the, the coal mines, it will be very uh, heavily impacted on by the closure of coal mines. Many of the people bearing the brunt of, for example, yeah, keeping households going and, and yeah. developing lo local livelihoods are in fact the woman. And so sure. they, there's really this need to to lift our gaze a little bit when we talk about, you know, local stakeholders and, and, and identify those groups that may not be immediately apparent, but will be heavily impacted on by these transitions and mm -hmm. involve them very directly in the in the kind of just transition uh, process. So in the process of, of who decides what a just transition may look like in these communities uh, mm -hmm. and and what distribution or fair distribution would, would look like around some of the benefits and harms. Absolutely. What lessons do you think that other African countries can probably learn from the South African uh, just transition and also the Indian study? This is a, a, a long answer, but I, I think that there are seven areas that, that we're starting to identify uh, as, as extremely useful for any country starting to, to look at a, at a transition uh, in order to make it more just. And the first is, is one that I've just touched on, you know, to identify the priority geographical areas uh, based on the kinds of, of impacts and barriers uh, and drivers of, of coal transitions. Uh, and it's going to be really important to map these strategic areas and to focus a lot of attention into those areas so, so that you can hear these local voices and they can influence local and, and national policy. I think linked to the geographic prioritization is also a need to look along value chains. So as I've said, you know, you can you can look at a coal mine, you can look at a coal mine and a, and a coal power station. In South Africa, we very quickly learned that the transport uh, bit of coal between the mine and the and the power stations was a major employer in the sector mm -hmm. uh, and linked of course to the to the transport or all the people that maintain the the trucks and the people that feed the truck drivers uh, there's a large uh, sex trade around some of these these uh, activities and so this need to to map out an extended value chain to understand who's going to be impacted in these in the particular areas Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's, I think, key. The, the other one is, is to establish working relationships and capacity building processes within and across national uh, and state government departments. So this ability to, as I've said, have something like a presidential uh, climate change coordination commission at a national level. There's the mm -hmm. need to build capacity and conversations at a local level. And then there's a real need to link those two so that communities can have their, their voices heard in the national dialogue and that national dialogue is is sensitive and responsive.
to what's happening in, in local areas. So that, that building of capacity across these, these big uh, dialogue areas, I suppose, is, is, an, is another one. Mm. Um, and in order to do that, there's going to need to be a recognition and empowerment of often marginalized stakeholders. I've, I've mentioned women. Uh, but, you know, in, in South Africa, it, it may be particularly around race. So to recognize that, that, this, that there's deep racial divisions uh, in these sectors and to make sure that, that we uh, don't further marginalize black rural communities, for example, uh, but to, to bring them in and to build their capacity to influence uh, decision making processes. Mm. So, so that would be key. Um, I think one of the things that we see is is very deep vested interests and in the lack of where there's a lack of good information these vested interests and i think there for example of people who maybe own a large number of coal mines mm. who are who are able to say to communities that that if the coal mine closes then all of their livelihoods disappear and they will be even more poverty stricken uh, I think we need to to understand the bigger systems here. What impact are those coal mines having on, for example, soil fertility, on water quality, on air quality, on local communities? Uh, and so that kind of systemic modeling and scenario planning uh, at a local level will, will help to address some of the, the vested interests mm -hmm. uh, and link to that the need to kind of draw up priority activities, timelines, budgets, so that nobody gets caught by surprise with the sudden announcement of we're closing a, a coal-fired power plant, uh, which mm. yeah, really does. Uh, and, and rightly so, you know, people are worried about their, their livelihoods and how they'll provide for their families and children. So to have long-term planning, to, to have budgets set aside for that, uh, and to keep everybody up to date. And then a, a final point around needing uh, frameworks, environmental and social frameworks in the banks uh, that pick up on these many different dimensions that support the monitoring uh, and evaluation of, of the impacts of, of transformative uh, initiatives uh, and then really support skills development to respond to a diversified economy uh, in these particular areas. So. So skills, uh, diversifying the economy and then building skills as well uh, to keep track of what's happening in these areas. Yeah, and I'm listening to you speak and I'm thinking in terms of to take care of this vested interest and actually empower uh, these different stakeholders and also um, conduct research in terms of understanding uh, different scenarios on the ground. Uh, they, they, there is an, um, a very important in terms of funding. I'm wondering what role do uh, institutions like the AFDB, what role do they play in terms of the South African win and um, yeah, just transition process in South Africa. In terms of funding, how much is it critical for um, African nations to be able to actually get uh, probably into like get the just transition right? Mm. So I think that they, I mean, very crudely, there are probably two levels at which the, the multilateral development banks uh, can make a significant contribution. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is a, is a narrow one, and we saw it with, uh, with the African Development Bank, for example, when it invested in the, in the Siri wind farm or in the concentrated solar power initiatives uh, in, in South Africa. There, there were strong commitments for, I suppose, what you could almost describe as corporate social investment in the area in which the projects were being developed. Mm -hmm. uh, and that corporate social investment included things like um, 
uh, yeah, building capacity amongst uh, women's groups, uh, supporting education in the area from early childhood development all the way through to, to university education. So the recognition that, that there needs to be an investment over the long term. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then contributed to the development of um, high-end skills so that local communities could start to, to work and to find employment in, uh, in the various renewable energy industries. So, you know, that's a kind of local level contribution. It doesn't really talk to a bigger just transition though. And so that's the, the second level is that the, the, the multilateral development banks, the African Development Bank have in a sense a, a, a mobilizing power for cross-sectoral dialogue. They're able to bring together sectors that might not normally talk to each other in a in a siloed kind of space uh, and to to encourage uh, yeah, a more sort of programmatic approach. And we see it in things like the country investment strategies, country investment plans uh, that, that countries and the MDBs work on together. And I think in some of that planning to start to take a conscious uh, focus uh, or to place a conscious kind of emphasis on just transitions in these big uh, transformative uh, processes. Mm. Thank you so much, Mike. Your final word. A final word. I, I think that the that the transitions in energy systems, in in a range of other systems, you know, in the African Development Bank also, for example, has sort of supported the forest investment uh, program FIP in Ghana. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I think that in many of these areas, we're going to see big transitions as we take conscious climate action, uh, whether it be the inclusion of, of forests in things like Red Plus or in the nationally determined contributions. Uh, so the, the transitions across many sectors are inevitable, whether they're just or not, will depend entirely on our uh, focus on ensuring social inclusion uh, and, and being careful about distributional impact. And so it's, it's going to take a conscious piece of work to ensure just transitions. Uh, the alternative, I think, is, is unjust transitions and, uh, and you know, great suffering across many of the existing uh, marginalized groups in, in, our, in our continent. Hmm. Mike, thank you so much. We have to end this conversation there, but I sincerely appreciate you taking time. Sophia, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Remember, you can access other Financing Change in Africa series episodes on our website, www.africaclimateconversations.com, or listen to us on Spotify, Google, Apple, and every other channel you access your other podcasts from. Please write to us using info at africaclimateconversations.com or hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now, remember, the Financing Change in Africa series is a conversation made possible by a collaboration between the African Development Bank, the Climate Investment Funds, and the Africa Climate Conversations. I will see you next week on Tuesday when we start the restoration of the African Dryland series. But until then, kwaheri. My name is Sophie Bobo.